Bibles to Joshua chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verse 12 through 13, and then if you would uh, put your finger there and turn over just a few pages, we're also going to be spending just a little bit of time in Judges chapter 17, verse 36 this morning. Um, We're beginning to tie those things together as we get closer and closer to the end of Joshua Uh, one of the things that we will notice is that Joshua, the end of Joshua, is setting up the events and what happens in the book of Judges. Um, Much, sadly, to the dismay of the reader. If you read through Judges, you know that while there are some incredible things that happen in it, most of the book of Judges is uh, largely the failure of Israel to follow God well. Um, and the consequences of it. Um, And really, that begins, but that begins in, as I said, Joshua. Um, And certainly, we're going to see some of the beginnings of it here in Joshua chapter 17. Um, As Israel begins to, in many ways, take a step back from following the Lord completely. So hopefully by now, you found Joshua chapter 17 and Judges chapter 1. If you would Uh, Please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Joshua chapter 17, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. And then turning over with me to Judges chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zapath, and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses said, and he drove out from it three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jezebites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jezebites Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us a way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshion and its villages, Tanaid and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ebalom and its villages, and the inhabitants of Migdu and its villages. The Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not... Drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Halab, or, the, or of Akazib, or Helba, or Akpik, or Aphik, or of Rehob. 
And so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nephali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Hanath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Hanath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Matheris, in Ajalon, in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah upward. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for how it speaks to us, how it is alive to us. Lord, even when we don't always understand the names of these places or uh, where we're talking about, Lord, that you have a message for us, even all of these hundreds and thousands of years later, that you desire to speak to us this morning, that you desire to speak to us every day, every moment, that you are a good father and a friend who walks with us through all the ups and downs, all of the victories and all of the mourning of this life. Lord, that you never never leave us alone, that you never forsake nor abandon us. And Father, I pray this morning that as we hear your word, Lord, that we would be honest in our evaluation of our walk with you. Lord, that we would be honest, Lord, whether we are truly fulfilling the command that you have given us, whether we have taken seriously that word that we spoke, that some of us spoke so long ago, and we said that we would make you Lord of our life. Lord, that we would reflect upon that this morning. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This morning, uh, if you caught on to what we were reading, you would have noticed that in the book of Joshua chapter 17 and then in Judges chapter 1, we see a reoccurring thing happen. We see that Israel is unable to drive out all the inhabitants We're not told exactly why this takes place, and we're not even going to so much speculate this morning other than to say it appears that as they were going through the land, that they get to the point where they see the battle and the conquest and obedience to fulfill the Word of God as just not worth it anymore. That at some point they decide that Enough is enough, and they decide to be satisfied. And we may ask ourselves, as we read Joshua and as we read Judges, what's the big deal? After all, they had conquered most of the land, right? It appears, as we go through these passages, that it's a city here or a city here or a plain and a field here or a a small area in comparison to the rest of the country that they have not taken over and possessed. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that they were commanded in a very specific way and warned about not following that commandment in a very specific way. 
If you would, turn with me to Numbers chapter 33. This is not the only place that this command is given, but it might be one of the most clear places that it is given. In Numbers chapter 33, in verse 50, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and it's not too long before the death of Moses. This is towards the end of his life, towards the uh, towards the end of his time leading Israel. Israel is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over. And God is reminding Moses and the people of some of the instructions that he has for them. So in 33, starting in chapter 33, starting in verse 50, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, this shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and you shall will do, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So in this passage we see two commands and then we see two warnings. First, the first command is to drive out everyone. They were to leave no one remaining. We read a while back when we looked at the story of Gibeon, we saw the Israelites make a peace accord with them in direct violation of this passage and, a, and several others where God says, do not, do not make peace with them. And they violate that. Here we see the direct command, you're not to leave anyone You're to drive all of them out. And yet what we see in Judges and Joshua, again, is a failure to do that. Second command that we see is to tear down every idol. They're to remove all of the figured stones and destroy all of the metal images and demolish all of the high places. There is not to be in Israel any sort of reminder or any sort of figure that would testify to the worship of someone or something other than the one true God of Israel. They're to tear it all down, to get rid of it all. As I thought about that command this week, I was reminded of a story that one of our missionaries tells he has been a missionary for a long, long time in Central Africa, and I may have even shared this story with you before, but uh, he was a missionary, has been a missionary for a long time in, in Central Africa, and he was baptizing a elderly woman who had given her life to Christ, and she had, uh, she was in her late 70s, early 80s. Uh, she was frail. I mean, she was um, small, not, not a hulking giant, as you would probably uh, consider, but 
before they baptized her, one of the things that they talked about with this lady was, you need to get rid of all of the idols and all of the witchcraft things that are in your possession, and you need to get rid of those or they will still have control over you. Um, and it was something that they did a lot with, uh, with those individuals in the village as they would baptize them and they would come to know the Lord. And so he goes to baptize this, this elderly lady, and this man is no slouch. He's probably 6'1", and probably weighs 190, somewhere in that range. So he's not a small guy. But he goes to baptize her, and she begins to attack him with a strength and a ferocity that does not equate to her size, to the point where she almost drowns this man. At that point, some of the other church leaders in the village go in and they drag the both of them out of the water. And when they get to dry land, he turns and looks at the woman who is being restrained at this point and says, tell me where they are. Tell me where they are. And she begins to describe to him how she has hidden some of the idols and some of the witchcraft items in her home. And they go and they take and they, they found them just where she described where they at and they burned those items. And he said immediately you could see a complete change in this woman's demeanor and in her, her attitude and in everything about her. We often don't think about those things and we don't think about how they control us or they don't, because many of us, I would guess, don't have idols sitting around in our house. But there is a reality that when we worship things that are not God, whether they are visual representations or not, whether they are true idols in the sense of a carven image setting on your mantle or not, they do have a control over us that is undeniable. And so God tells the people of Israel, tear down every idol, remove all of it. And then he gives a double warning. Now, I don't have both of these written down, but he gives them two warnings. The first is that if you do not obey, then the people that you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. That's the first warning. If you do not obey, if you allow some of these people to stay in your midst, they will be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. And then the second warning, which is maybe more frightening, is in verse 56. It says, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. God makes it clear that if you are disobedient, if Israel is disobedient in this area, that his justice, his judgment will turn from the people of Canaan to Israel. It's probably a good reminder of what he says in Deuteronomy 9, chapter 4, which we read several weeks ago. It says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving Driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God has made it clear to Israel throughout, throughout Scripture that 
it is not because of the goodness that they have done that he is working, but rather it is his grace that he has bestowed upon them. And the reason these other nations are leaving is not because that Israel is better than they are, but it's because these, these nations have committed evil and are, are coming to their rightful justice and judgment. However, if Israel chooses to disobey God, then they are no different than the people that they are conquering. And therefore, there is justice and judgment for them as well. It is a dire warning that to obey God, and not just to obey Him in part, but to obey Him in full. And that's certainly not what we see In the text, what we see in the text is the failure of Israel to complete the task. Over and over again, we see the the words, they could not take possession. They could not take possession. And we're given different reasons for that. Sometimes it's chariots of iron. Sometimes it's because they live in the hill country. Sometimes it's because the people just were persistent But let me ask you this question. Had Israel not faced chariots before? Well, certainly they had. Not that long ago, we were talking about the northern conquest. And remember, it was chariots and horses. Had they not faced people in the hill country? Well, certainly they had faced people in the hill country. In fact, they had faced giants in the hill country and overcome. Had they not faced people that were persistent? Well, good golly. You think Jericho was just like, eh, it's not worth it to have the town? Surely they had faced people that were persistent. It's kind of like I I always love when you hear a coach speak or you hear athletes say something along the lines of, well, we just wanted it more. Like the other team didn't want it. Like they're bawling their eyes out right now because they didn't want it. You think Jericho didn't want it less than whoever else, the Hittites? They wanted it. So if they had faced all these things before, then why is it here that they cannot take possession? Is it because the Lord had suddenly grown weaker? Because God had somehow failed? Well, certainly not. Scripture makes it evident That the failure is not here with God. The failure here is with Israel to follow through. We get the idea, though it's never directly stated, we get the idea that they have just become satisfied. We have enough land. We've been fighting. We've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. We've been fighting for seven more. We've got land. We've got Jericho, we've got Ai, we've got all the southern land here, we've got that over there. Who cares if we don't have Jerusalem? It'll be okay. Who cares if we don't have Gaza and the land of the Philistines? I'm sure that they won't be a problem later. By the way, if you know your Bible, that should be funny. Okay? Oh, uh, the Hivites have pushed back. The Hittites are up there, but you know what? They're in the hill country. I think it'll be fine. We'll just leave them there as a neighbor. It'll, It'll be all good. They just settle. They're content with less than what they have been told to do. They are like the child who cleans their room 
and the floor appears clean until you begin to look under the bed, or the floor appears to be clean until you inspect it and you realize that the job is not entirely finished. And the child stands in the middle room and says, isn't this good enough? Well, no, it's not good enough. There's still a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that's going to mold underneath your bed. You might want to clean that before you have pests. So they're to, there's a failure that they could not take possession, and it is a failure of the entire country. When you look at the, the text, what you see is seven of the 12 fail. Seven of the 12 tribes that are given land to inherit fail. Now, just a quick word here, just to maybe sort out a little confusion or maybe add a little. Levi, one of the tribes, is given cities. They're the priestly. We're going to talk about them in a couple weeks. Joseph's tribe is split into Manasseh and Ephraim, and they are, those two are given inheritance. But 12 tribes, 12 groups are given land to inherit. Seven of them are mentioned in our text this morning as having not completed the job. You're probably wondering about the other four. The other four, two of them are Reuben and Gad, who settled on the east side of the Jordan and failed in a completely different manner. They didn't even cross, okay? They were like, ah, this is good enough. We're, we're fine. The other two are Simeon. Simeon is, if you look at where Simeon is given land, he is part of Judah, like, he is completely surrounded by Judah. In fact, if you have a map in your Bible that shows where the cities and, and the, the different areas of Israel are, a lot of times Simeon is colored in two colors, the, their color and the color of Judah. So any failure of Judah is also a failure of Simeon. And then the last one is Issachar. And Issachar is kind of in the same general idea, that they are surrounded by all of these other tribes. So really... The picture, though there are four missing in the list, we can say that the entire nation failed. All of them were responsible. And before you object and say, well, what about Levi? Levi didn't fail. Well, Levi is the priest. They're the ones that are supposed to be holding Israel accountable. And they said nothing. They maybe have failed more than anyone. So it's a failure of the entire nation nation. They have forgotten what God has commanded them to do. And what we're going to see moving forward is not only have they forgotten the command of God, but they have forgotten who won them this land in the first place. Who won them the land in the first place? So we have this failure. And what it leads to, and we're going to get to more of this here in just a moment, but it leads to intermarriage and then idol worship. Not only do they not drive out the people, but they begin to intermarry with the people, and they begin to accept those other groups, the fake gods, the fake idols, they begin to accept them as their own. In many cases, not replacing entirely God, but doing a type of syncretism where they begin to worship both which is maybe worse. And so we have this complete failure to obey. We have the complete failure of the nation. And now we have a complete failure to even follow the Lord. And because of it, we have consequences. We have consequences. The first consequence is we have constant distress. 
If you flip over to Judges, if your Bible has uh, headings, I would encourage you to do this. You, don't, you probably aren't going to finish it in the time that we have available this morning, but sometime look at Judges and look at the headings that are given to the chapters and paragraphs. You see words like oppression. You see words like destroys, defeats. You see words like death, <laughs> downfall. Some of those are Israel's enemies, but many of those descriptions are of Israel. They are under constant distress from this moment until the time of David. Israel is under constant distress by the people that they allowed to stay. Whether it be the the Philistines or the Hivites, man, I cannot pronounce words today, Philistines or Hivites or the Canaanites, they are under constant distress. This is a fulfillment of what God said when he said, they're going to be a barb in your eye and thorn in your side. These people are going to be a problem for you. And sure enough, they were. We see a moral failure. We see moral failure in Israel. As you look through the book of Judges, you see the lack of obedience in conquest and in removing idols. And then you get into idol worship and intermarriage with Canaanites. And then you get into even worse things. You look at the end of the last few chapters of Judges and Israel and the people of Israel are doing unthinkable things. Things that make your stomach turn. Things that you read about when we talk, when the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're like, how can this happen among the people of God? Those who claim to be followers of Yahweh. And yet when we look at their actions in Judges, we don't see that. There's moral failure and then there's divine discipline. Turn with me to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Very quickly. At the beginning of 2, we see God's discipline upon Israel. His response to their failure. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Boshim, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. God tells them that he will not clean up their mess. They have refused to obey him. They have refused to follow through on what he had commanded them to do many, many times. And God's response is to say, 
this is going to be a problem for you, and I am not going to just fix it. You're going to have to deal with some of these consequences. The same could be true of our lives. God is certainly a God of grace and mercy. And if we call out to Him in repentance, surely He saves us from the most difficult and the most horrible of consequences, which is an eternal life in hell. But there are times, many times in this life, where when we choose not to obey, He does not remove the immediate consequence. I'm sure many of us could testify of times that we have made poor decisions despite warning upon warning And it is a constant thorn in our side. Though God gives grace and forgiveness, we have reminders. Certainly Israel had the same. And so he gives divine discipline. And really, we look throughout the book of Judges, and he gives more and more and more of that as we go through. However, we also see God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness in Judges, we see that he waits. He waits. When you read through the book of Judges, what you're going to see is a cycle that reoccurs, that Israel begins to slip away from God, and that is usually a decades-long process, followed by discipline from the Lord, usually in the form of another country coming in and occupying a section of Israel or a specific tribe of Israel. That usually lasts for a short time compared to the decades-long slide. And then you see a deliverer or judge who comes and rescues them. And for a time, Israel follows God again, but then there's that slow decline once again. And it's just a cycle that repeats But one thing that we see over and over again throughout Judges and really the whole history of Israel is God's patience, that he waits, that he desires that they repent without discipline. If you are a parent, and boy, howdy, am I learning this, but if you are a parent and you are trying to raise your child I never knew what patience was. I never knew what that was. I never knew the patience of my mom and dad until this last two years. The desire for a parent just to have the child obey a simple command like don't touch that outlet. It might be harmful. And yet to see them over and over and over again do that which you are begging them not to do for their own safety and their own good until finally you are given no other option but to use a more firm medium of discipline that is painful. In the same way, The Lord is patient with Israel. He warns them. He gives them time. He begs them, please stop doing this. But he does not wait forever. Eventually, he does discipline those that bear his name. But there's good news, too. Not only does he wait, but he also hears them. 
In the middle of their discipline, in the middle of their oppression, the people call out and they, they in repentance and in desperation call to God, Lord, save us. And he hears that request. He hears that repentance. He hears it and he has grace and mercy. And he sends deliverers. He sends Samson and Othnel and Gideon and Deborah and others. He sends deliverers that they may rescue Israel, that there may be repentance for a time. It's good for us to see God's faithfulness here. So what does this do for us? How then do we apply this? Well, first, it's a reminder of our need. We have broken covenant. We have a God who created us, who loves us, and yet all of us, the Bible tells us, have walked away from God. All of us have not done that which God has commanded us to do, and all of us have done that which he told us to stay away from. We have broken covenant with him. And we have judgment because of it. There are consequences because of it. Lest though you hear that church member and think, well, he is preaching the gospel to someone who is already saved, let us reflect that many of us have become satisfied with less than perfect. The Lord called us to repent. It's not what saves us, but it's a reflection of salvation that we repent. We say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to live this way. And God calls us to become closer to him. He calls us into a life of holiness. He calls us to remove sin from our life. And yet what happens most, most generally is that once the fire of salvation begins to burn low, we begin to settle for less than perfect We begin to no longer see the need for, no desire, the fight against sin. And we begin to say, well, it's close enough. We're like the little child with a peanut butter sandwich shoved underneath their bed that we think that that's clean enough because it's not visible. And we begin to think, well, that sin is not visible. Therefore, it's okay. It's okay, I've, I've cleaned 75% of my room, it's okay. Lord, I've, I've gotten rid of, I'm, I'm 75% better than the world. I'm okay. And we've become satisfied with less than what he has commanded us to do. Even as individuals, we see that as a church, we see that at times, do we not? That we do a program or we do a building, or we do something, we think, oh, look at all we've done for the Lord, but we fall short of completing the task. And this is not a call to be perfect in the sense that we will achieve that on this side of heaven, but it is a call to continue to strive after that which God has called us to do. And because we have broken covenant, because we have become satisfied with what is less than perfect, then we have allowed sin to grow. We've allowed sin to grow. We start with something small. We say, well, it's okay. It's not visible. It's not hurting anybody. Therefore, I can allow it to just sit. I don't have to work at that. I don't have to remove that from our life. And what ends up happening is we begin to sleep on that sin, so to speak. And the next thing is we awake and we're so deep in the weeds that we don't know our way out. And our prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling and going no farther. The word of God feels dry 
We have no desire to serve the church. We've pulled, in fact, we've, if anything, we've pulled ourselves farther and farther out of it, and we don't know why. And it's because we have grown satisfied with less than perfect, and we have allowed sin to remain in our lives, and it has slowly removed us from Him. But there is good news, brothers and sisters. There is good news, friends. He has faithfulness towards you. He waits for you. Second Peter, we've read this many times, but Second Peter chat, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to, as some account slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He loves you. He is patient with you. Both his child, the one who has accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you who have never had a relationship, he is patient. He wants you. doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself. Your creator wants you, and he is waiting for you. Not only that, but he will not wait forever. The rest of that passage in 2 Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Someday we will give account of who we are and what we have done and whether we are his or not. He waits for you. He longs for you. He begs you to come to him. He will not wait forever, but he will hear you. He will hear you. Friend, if you are sitting here this morning and you know that there's something in your life that is not right, that some you are not right with him, you're not right with someone else, that there is something in your life that you know is keeping you from him, know that he will hear you. Know that he desires to forgive. Know that he desires mercy. And know that he delivers. One of the things that we continually see in the book of Judges is we see that, that lapse, we see the oppression, we, and then we see a human deliverer. We see a Samson, we see a, a Gideon, we see a Deborah, we see all of these judges. But one of the things that becomes clear as you read that book is that a human is never going to fix the problem. None of the judges can ever fix the problem of Israel's heart, that Israel wants to wander away from God, that Israel has a sin problem. They can never fix that. And it is supposed to be a pointier, an arrow towards the fact that we have a need that we cannot solve, that we need a deliverer that can fix the ultimate problem. And praise the Lord, he has sent just that. John 3, 16, For he so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ was the deliverer. For whatever sin, whatever mistakes you may have made, for however far you may have wandered from your true love, 
From however far you may have rebelled against the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there is a deliverer. And as I prayed with the children earlier, he did not come up short. He died for you, and he rose again for you. He completed the task. Amen and and amen. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning, and I apologize to the praise team because I... This is different, but I'm going to have Jennifer come up and just play for us just for a moment. We're not going to belabor this. We're not going to extend this out long. But this passage and this sermon calls us to a place of repentance. It calls us to a place of inspection of our own hearts to ask the Lord, how is my relationship with you? Have I done all that you've commanded me to do? Or am I bearing the name of Christ, but I have yet to complete the task? I have yet to follow him completely. I come on Sundays, I'm faithful here, but the rest of my week, I really have pretty much forgotten about him. This morning... As Jennifer plays, we're just going to have a time of reflection. Ask the Lord, search my heart. Where where am I falling short of you? And ask him to forgive us that we may follow him completely. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never given your life to Christ. You've never followed him. This morning, this is your opportunity. He is begging you. He is calling to you. Come to me. Know my forgiveness. Know my grace. This morning, let's just have a time of reflection. You can do that at your seat. You can come to the altar. But let's just have that moment right now. Father, we just come before you this morning. 
Father, we thank you. Lord, that you have seen us right where we are, who we are. Lord, that in your eyes, all things are exposed. Nothing is hidden from you. Lord, that every thought we've ever had, that every deed that we've ever done, Lord, is on display before the holy God of all creation, and yet you love us. Father, Lord, I pray this morning. Lord, I pray for the one that is here who has never given their life to Christ, that they don't know a relationship with him. Lord, that you would continue to call on their hearts, to call their name, that they would respond this morning to you, that they, if they don't know what that looks like, that they would seek someone out this morning. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here, for this dear church family, for those of us that would bear the name of Christ. And yet, if we are honest this morning, that we would make confession that we have settled for less than you. Father, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray that we would remove all of the distractions that we would remove all of the pretty things, that we would remove anything in our life that gets in the way of you, Lord, and that we would, we would desire you as our most precious thing. Lord, that we would not settle for anything less than that. Father, thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you deliver us. Thank you that we get to celebrate that. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask that the praise team...